Hello, and welcome to Mayo Talks, a brand new podcast from Mayo Clinic, featuring expert insight on today's medical issues. You can learn more about us at mayotalks.com. This week's talk, celiac disease, 10 things every primary care provider should know, was presented by Dr. Margaret Gill at the Clinical Reviews Conference held on November 14, 2016 in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Margaret Gill, who's a good friend and, and colleague of mine that works in the family medicine department. She is one of Mayo Clinic's experts on celiac disease and is here to discuss 10 things that every primary care provider should know in 2016. Margaret, thanks. Thanks, Dr. Jacobson. You know, every time he asks me to talk, I think, really, have, haven't you guys heard this enough? My first talk was in about 2002, and at that time I felt really motivated because on the University of Chicago website, there was a notation from a study that said it on average takes 11 years and nine physicians for a patient to get a diagnosis of celiac disease. So then I looked, and article in press not yet published out of Sweden or Switzerland, and in general, the Europeans have a, a much higher awareness of celiac disease than we do. And as of 2016, it takes on average seven years and four months for patients to get a diagnosis of celiac disease. And the headline, celiac disease diagnosis is still significantly delayed. Doctors, but not patients, are responsible for the delay. And then Dr. Potteruka did a great job leading into this because only 20% of you chose to test a TTG. So I know I stand between you and lunch and we have a lot of things to cover, but I hope to give you some really good take-home points that you can use as a primary care provider about celiac disease, and I have no disclosures. So we'll start with celiac disease is in your practice. There are a lot of famous faces that have brought notoriety to celiac disease. And Lady Gaga, for several years, touted the weight loss benefits of a gluten-free diet. The market for a gluten-free diet is huge, $16 billion in 2016. But Americans eat far less gluten than the Italians do, yet a substantially higher number of us are overweight. And in fact, in the NIH website in 2016 would say that only a third of celiacs are normal weight or underweight. A third of us are above ideal weight and 30% are obese at the time of diagnosis. And in fact, after implementing a gluten-free diet for two years, 81% of patients, irrespective of their starting weight, gained weight. So, I think the notoriety is not due to weight loss. It's a common problem. And the NHANES data says that 0.7% of the U.S. population, so about 1 in 133 of us, have celiac disease. And about 1% of the Caucasian population has celiac disease. And it is estimated that only 17% of those who have it are aware of it. So there are plenty of cases out there in your practices to find. So the most recent studies remain the 2003 study from Fasano et al. in the United States, which looked at 13,000 patients and predicted that about 1 in 133 on the basis of their testing had celiac disease. 
There was a little bit larger study, actually 40,000 patients out of four European countries that was published in 2010 that concurred about 1% of that population has celiac disease. And we know now that in developing countries, we're starting to see prevalence rates overlapping those of European rates. And in this um, population of Arab Berber origin, where there's 5% uh, population of celiac disease, that's because many of them are in refugee camps being fed a high gluten diet. So if we translate the prevalence then, we would anticipate about 2.1 million Americans with celiac disease, and 80% of those are undiagnosed. So that's the challenge for us today in primary care. So when we consider the diagnosis, how do we go about making it? So I'm going to put in a case here that walked into my practice, a 52-year-old female who presented to me last year for a pre-anesthetic medical evaluation. And she was complaining of fatigue, weight gain, and chronic belly pain, which she attributed to constipation, although she had occasional diarrhea. A review of her medical records showed that she had autoimmune thyroid disease and a bone density which was consistent with osteopenia, which is a little bit unusual perhaps for a 52-year-old. She underwent an evaluation for her irritable bowel disease in 2011, and she was noted to be anemic. And remember that that's a red flag symptom for irritable bowel. They did a deaminated gliadin, which was negative, and a total IgA which was less than one. So this is a patient with a selective IgA deficiency. It requires us to think harder about the tests that we order. Her IgA TTG was not surprisingly negative, and her TTG IgG was mildly positive. So because of her anemia, she appropriately underwent evaluation with a colonoscopy that showed polyps. She had an EGD, which was remarkable for a hiatal hernia, and they did biopsies of her small bowel. And look at the report. She had intraepithelial lymphocytosis with minimal villus atrophy. Can be seen in symptomatic, latent, or partially treated disease. So unfortunately, in the provider's note, she noted that the patient had put herself on a gluten-free diet. So when she came back to see me in 2015, she had restarted a gluten-free diet about three months prior because she said, you know, I just really feel better on that diet. But she'd had no formal education about how to implement a gluten-free diet, and it's tricky. And in 2015, her hemoglobin is now 10. Her TTG remains weakly positive. And so I did genetic testing, and she had the permissive genes. I saw the biopsy report and I thought, rather than repeat an EGD, I'm going to send her to GI, who agreed that this was celiac disease partially treated. So we really missed it and contributed to her morbidity. So before we can make a diagnosis, we have to consider this in the differential, whether it's in the differential of elevated LFTs, anemia, IBS. And serology and biopsy need to be performed when a patient's on gluten or it, on a gluten-containing diet, or it might be falsely negative, because both can and should normalize on a gluten-free diet. A small bowel biopsy is still the gold standard for making the diagnosis, and in the, in the European literature, there have been some arguments about skipping endoscopy and biopsy for kids. But across the board, the British recommendations, the American recommendations are still to proceed with that. And we need four to six samples in the biopsy. Why? Because this is a patchy disease, and the degree of symptoms will depend on the amount of proximal to distal 
damage in the small intestines, and so doing one biopsy can lead to a false negative. It's really important to measure a total IgA because if you have a patient with an IgA deficiency, you need to order IgG-based testing. If the suspicion of celiac disease is high, small bowel biopsies should be done even if serologies are negative, and that's good evidence, uh, level A evidence. The testing should be done with patients on a gluten-containing diet, and if the patient has already put them up themselves on a gluten-light or a gluten-free diet, one could consider a gluten challenge, which would be four slices of bread for four to six weeks, and then consider either repeat serologic testing or EGD. And it's important to remember that the anti-gliadin antibody testing that was used for many years is no longer recommended because of its poor sensitivity and specificity. Oh, what did I do there? All right. There we go. All right. I don't know where that came from. All right, so if we go back to case number one, a couple of points. Remember to order IgG-based tests in patients with a selective IgA deficiency. So 10% of patients with a selective IgA deficiency will have celiac disease. Of all the celiacs, 2% have a selective IgA deficiency. The pathology from the biopsy is the gold standard, and in this case, unfortunately, the person who interpreted it in the clinical setting was not aware of how to interpret it. So if we're not sure, we should ask an expert. And be sure to know if the patient's on a gluten-light or a gluten-free diet before you proceed with the testing. So celiac disease actually fulfills several of the World Health Organization criteria for mass screening. So why don't we mass screen? We've heard that question before. There's a high prevalence, about 1% of the population. The testing is relatively uh, sensitive, specific, readily available. There's available treatment, which reduces morbidity. And in general, because of the very protean presentation, it's a difficult clinical detection. So why not do it? So the TTG-IgA and the IgG roughly have about the same sensitivity and specificity, with the IgA being a little bit better than the IgG. And because I couldn't find any agreement in the literature, I didn't put those numbers in. The deamidated gliadin, which is different than the anti-gliadin antibody, is less sensitive but has a pretty good specificity, and we in general tend to use that either as adjunct or in kids because of the lower general sensitivity and specificity in kids under two. So if we assume a population of 1,000 and we assume a 1% prevalence of celiac disease, we're going to have a total of 10 celiacs in that population. But we, when we apply the sensitivity and the specificity of the 29 patients that we say have positive serology, only a third of them end up with celiac disease. So that's why it's probably not a good test. But what if we think about a high-risk group like first-degree relatives where about 10% of that population is going to end up with celiac disease? Well, now the positive predictive value of serologic testing is 83%, and that is a situation where we should screen for it in patients without symptoms. So genetic testing, it shouldn't be done routinely, but there is a role for genetic testing. So if a patient does not have either DQ2 or DQ8, and the majority of patients are DQ2 positive, 
one can say with 95% certainty that that's not a patient who's going to have celiac disease. So it's got a 95% negative predictive value. So that's where the value of genetic testing lies. So the usefulness might come in patients where the biopsy results are confusing, when you have discrepant serology and histology, where you suspect refractory sprue, if you have family members and you want to know, do I need to continue to worry and test, or can I stop? Or in some of the higher risk populations, like a patients with Down syndrome, and we'll review that in a bit. So we're going to move on to a second case um, that comes out of the practice here, a 27-year-old G2P2 who presented to the emergency room with a small bowel obstruction. Six months before this, she had delivered. Um, and the pregnancy was complicated by dyspnea, daily headaches, restless leg syndrome, and angular colitis, glossitis. And she had pretty significant anemia, so hemoglobin of 8.7 and an MCV of 71. And previously it had a normal MCV. And it was refractory to oral iron. The delivery was complicated by a significant postpartum hemorrhage. And in the postpartum course, she had recurrent nosebleeds, easy bruising, menometarrhagia, despite oral contraceptive use. And at the time of presentation, she had a hemoglobin of 8. Look at the decline in the MCV, and her ferritin was 2. The INR at the time of presentation was 2.2, and she was not on any oral anticoagulants. So she underwent an EGD, which the, um, grossly appeared to have a malabsorptive pattern, and the endoscopist saw no villi. And the biopsy showed complete villus atrophy consistent with celiac disease. Despite being started on a gluten-free diet and continuing on OCPs, she conceived, six months later, a third pregnancy. So let's talk about the clinical presentation of celiac disease. So remember that celiac disease is an autoimmune disease and not a food allergy. And what happens is in genetically susceptible individuals who consume gluten, it creates an immune reaction mediated by T cells that destroys the small bowel villus surface. And it leads to patchy damage and if left long enough, complete damage which leads to malabsorption of micronutrients, and that's what leads to clinical symptoms. So you need both the genes and you need to eat the gluten. The arrows actually should be convergent, and that's what causes the T-cell-mediated inflammation. And in one of the articles by one of the experts, they've likened it that if the absorptive surface of the small intestine flattened out would be the size of a tennis court, that it can be reduced to the size of a ping pong table with celiac disease. So the amount of damage determines the amount of micronutrient absorption and therefore the symptoms. So patients can present with a range of things, including short stature, children have failure to thrive, they fall off the growth chart, they have osteopenic or osteoporotic bone disease, lactose intolerance secondary to the edema in the small gut, infertility, abdominal pain, 20% present with constipation and not diarrhea. They have, may have dental enamel defects, night blindness, increased risk of seizures, anemia. And actually, the new data says 30% of, of celiacs on presentation are obese with a BMI greater than 30. And ideally, if we do a good job, they present with single micronutrient deficiency. 
So considering this then, let's look at some of the abnormalities we see with celiac disease. So fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K are affected, and the night blindness comes from vitamin A deficiency. The vitamin D deficiency uh, impacts calcium absorption and leads to bone disease. And it's the vitamin K deficiency which affects the vitamin K-dependent clotting factors and leads to the prolonged INR and bleeding issues. So there is not evidence-based consensus about what labs we should follow, but at the time of diagnosis, I would consider a host of things, including, and this is category D, or expert opinion evidence, looking at iron, B12, and maybe methylmalonic acid, folate, zinc, copper, calcium, iron, carotene. And if the disease is severe, so multiple micronutrients are deficient, consider adding thiamine, B6, magnesium, and selenium. Uh, in follow-up of Dr. Pataruka's talk to drive this home, elevated transaminases, celiac disease is the cause of isolated elevated transaminases in anywhere, depending on the study, from one to 9% of patients who have this with an unknown cause. And a significant number of patients with autoimmune hepatitis will have concomitant celiac disease, and up to 6% of patients with primary biliary cirrhosis have concomitant celiac disease. So let's go on now to bone density. We talked about calcium malabsorption and vitamin D malabsorption. In 2003, the American Gastroenterology Association came out with guidelines on osteoporosis, and they said that we should do DEXA scans on all adult patients one year after initiation of a gluten-free diet. 65% will have an abnormal DEXA scan, and their risk of fracture is twofold higher over the general population. Bone health is dynamic, and it can improve on a gluten-free diet, and more than just the calcium and vitamin D malabsorption is the inflammation that can come as part of celiac disease, which increases bone resorption. So a study that's in press out of Harvard, only 35% of eligible patients have been screened with bone density testing, and of those, only 75% of the time was there an intervention on the basis of an abnormal result, and only 50% of the patients with an abnormal result had any follow-up testing. So clearly, as primary care docs, we can do better than this. So let's think about a few fertility and pregnancy considerations. So in that second case, the patient had a postpartum hemorrhage menorrhagia on OCPs, and a pregnancy conceived on OCPs after a diagnosis of celiac disease. So we remember that oral contraception is not titrated to effect. It's either working or it's not. In patients who are newly diagnosed with celiac disease and who have active malabsorption or, or who are not strictly adhering to a gluten-free diet, consider forms that do not require absorption via the gut. So intramuscular, transvaginal, transdermal, or implants. And due to the prevalence of metabolic bone disease, one might think twice about using um, medroxyprogesterone acetate long-term. There are good evidence for associations between celiac disease and reproductive issues, and it's a little more than I can cover with the time for the talk, so I put this, the information in there really for your reading pleasure. But we know that patients who have unexplained fertility, recurrent miscarriage, 
IUGR have a higher risk of celiac disease than the general population. But what has not been associated with celiac disease, despite folic acid malabsorption or neural tube defects, and SGA infants, unexplained stillbirths, and preeclampsia have not been associated with undiagnosed or untreated celiac disease. Untreated celiac disease affects pregnancy outcomes even when the clinical presentation is not severe, so it's important to think about it, and it's important to treat it to optimize pregnancy outcomes. So we know that celiac disease is an autoimmune disease and travels with other autoimmune diseases. Remember that dermatitis herpetiformis is the skin manifestation of celiac disease. 100% of those patients should be on a gluten-free diet for life. We talked that 10% of first-degree relatives should be tested. And so we don't make a recommendation that everybody with an autoimmune disease be routinely screened for celiac disease without signs or symptoms but one should think about the possibility of other autoimmune diseases in patients with celiac disease who have signs or symptoms suggestive of other diseases. And type 1 diabetics are a very high-risk population, and we need to consider the potential for celiac disease in that population. So what about feeding and caring for offspring? So in general, women who have untreated celiac disease have significant difficulties with maintaining breastfeeding. So treating them makes a huge difference for the infant outcome. We are not born celiacs. We are born with the genetic propensity to be celiacs. And in patients who are offspring of, of relatives with celiac disease, we can reduce their risk by introducing gluten between four and seven months. This is a new 2015 recommendation. Prior to that, the thinking was is that we should hold all, withhold all gluten for the first two years of life. This is a little guy from my practice who actually presented with recurrent vomiting and significant weight loss, and you can see the swollen belly. His diagnosis, which I missed, was celiac disease. So a couple last points here, medication management of patients with celiac disease. Remember that gluten-containing grains can bind the active medications. It's really difficult when we're looking at generic medications to keep track of that. It really needs to be the responsibility of our patients and their pharmacists to review their medications on a regular basis to ensure that they are not ingesting gluten with their medication. And there are currently bills in Congress trying to get medications labeled and even to get gluten out of drugs. We may need to dose adjust as patients improve their absorption on a gluten-free diet and consider alternative routes of administration for contraception. All right, the dietary basics are really more than we can cover. A couple of points that I just wanted to make is that there is now good government labeling, and if a food says that it is gluten-free, that means it has less than 20 parts per million, so whether it's made in the U.S. or abroad. There is no regulation of the um, alcohol and tobacco industry, and there is no regulation on the restaurant industry. So claims that are made by restaurants need to be validated. So let's go through what we learned today. 
So celiac disease is common. Go find it in your practice. The diagnosis can be initiated using serologic testing, but small bowel bi biopsy remains the gold standard. The presentation is very protean. Think about it before you get micronutrient malabsorption and significant morbidity and mortality. Treat the deficiencies and follow them regularly. Celiac disease confers an increased risk for osteopenia and osteoporosis. Don't let those people fall off your radar. Fertility and pregnancy are affected, so make sure to address pregnant patients. It's an autoimmune condition and not a food allergy, so think of it appropriately in that term. Gluten-containing grains can be used to bind drugs. Don't forget about that in your patients who aren't recovering. And a gluten-free diet is complex and expensive, but we can help our patients with the help of a dietitian and an expert team to do well on this lifestyle. Thank you for your attention. Thanks for listening. You can find today's featured talk, along with videos from our world-class medical conferences, at mayotalks.com. New talks are added weekly, so stop by often and let us know what you think. Mayo Talks is a copyrighted program from Mayo Clinic.